1: Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the show where every episode we sit down with one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of our favorite subjects and trace its history to find out where it all went off the rails. I am joined, as always, by Wen Powers. Wen, how you doing?
2: Andrew, I'm doing very well. I just got done with my work Zoom Christmas party, which basically means I put on a collared shirt while still wearing sweatpants and drank (laughs) beer While we did office awards, followed by a happy hour that we were just like, so anyone have any trips planned for next year? And I got to be honest, made me hate this pandemic more than ever.
1: (laughs) So I've got honestly a number of questions here. One, I don't feel like this should be a thing. But two, did you win any of the awards?
2: I did not. I did not win a single award. I think there was like six five hundred dollars in gift cards given out and i won zero dollars worth of gift card money
1: this sounds like a terrible christmas party
2: (laughs) look i appreciate the fact that they put in the effort to do the whole thing because they could have just not far be it from me to compliment uh someone that employs me which i feel is a no-go but i'm gonna do it anyways (laughs) they sent me like a gift card for food and everything earlier in the week as a thank you they sent me like a nice little like box of like uh, little presents and trinkets and whatnot as like a thank you for for the work this year. They're a good company. I really do appreciate them. It's just there's no way to make a Zoom office Christmas party work.
1: <laughs> yeah. And guys, this will be released in January 12th. But this is our last recording. This is our fourth recording in five days to get everything out ahead of Christmas. So we hope you guys had a good Christmas and a good New Year's. And I'm so excited for our, our guest. I'm joined by a good friend of mine. He has had his work featured in Funny or Die rolling stone the nerdist he's a writer a, a comedian uh, he's recently started working in comics his cartoons have been featured in the midwest hunting magazine furfish and game and new statesman and they're absolutely fantastic so please uh, david sliderman thank you for coming on how are you doing i'm doing great thank you for having me this is this is lovely to be here it is absolutely our pleasure so we we asked you what you wanted to talk about today and come back pretty quickly with chess I was immediately on board. This was also, I I mean, this was something I grew up with. Queen's Gambit has exploded right now. I'm very happy to see so many people really getting into this, that it's not just like a strict nerd thing before. But but what about you? What was your history with chess?
3: My babysitter taught me when I was, I think, eight or nine. And it was around the same time that, you know, my parents were not buying me Pokemon cards. So <laughs> this was kind of like the the next best game to play and the the f- cheapest game to play. So yeah, he he taught me and then I went off and just kind of played with my brother, my parents. And then I got to a point where I was beating them. Not that they're good. This wasn't a brag. This was just (laughs) elementary playing. (laughs) And then I got kind of bored of it and moved on. But then in fourth grade, I want to say, I was at, we had like an elementary school carnival. And I put my name in a raffle at the chess club booth to win. I think it was like Chessmaster 8000. It was like a computer program. Uh, the latest and greatest in PC software.
2: I mean, it's the eight thousandth edition. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's got to be good. eight thousand of these. They
3: make one every ten minutes.
2: Seven thousand nine hundred ninety-nine <laughs> of those. I understand why you would skip them, okay? Yeah. But that eight thousand was the top of the line.
3: It was the big eight zero zero zero. There we go. That's how
1: many
2: zeros that is.
3: Did I say the right number? I don't know.
1: Yeah, you you got it. That is 8,000. We are all smart enough to be playing this. My
2: main function on this podcast is cyberbullying people who are way smarter than me. So please, please take everything I say with a grain of salt.
3: Oh, yeah. That should probably be prefaced at the the top of this, is that I don't think chess is really in any way related to intelligence. I want to get that right (laughs) off the bat, that... Anything we talk about, it's not a flex. It's not a brag.
1: <laughs> right? No, I uh, I feel like I can actually consistently win against people that are bad at chess. And that's about the level I play at.
2: <laughs> what a flex to just be like, yeah! And look, if you put me up against the worst players, I'm going to kick their ass every time. That's me being like, look, I can box any child. If you give me a child, I can fight him. Yeah. That's not me saying I'm a good boxer. That's just saying that I have no morals.
1: This is the level of skill we're all about, approximately out here. You know, I, I was taught to play pretty young, and my family did not have any interest in this. <laughs> so when I was uh, maybe about 10, they got me, this was before they had like the the really big computer games for it, they got me the Kasparov electronic chessboard, oh, yeah. where you push on the board and then push again on the move you go to, so it registers it, and then it lights up where you're supposed to move the opponent to, and I won against this machine, and I went to talk to my parents, and I guess I did not have an understanding that there were levels of difficulty, <laughs> like this was equivalent in my head to beating Kasparov, <laughs> and I was like, why, we need to be signing me up for tournaments <laughs> right now, how are you not more excited about all of (laughs)
2: oh i'm sorry your son's a genius (laughs) (laughs) just the idea of you going in there so smug and just being like hey mom, hey dad, I hate to tell you but I have beat a super computer in, the, in my bedroom.
1: It turns out it was on difficulty level one <laughs> so uh, I was uh, not exactly killing it but I, honestly I think they got me the game because it was like, cool, now we don't have to play with him <laughs> They were very abiding actually they, they put, played with me a lot but I, I know none of them had interest so thank you mom and dad for sitting down and playing this game for hours that I know you couldn't care about. So when? how about you? What was your background here?
2: So I, I used to play chess a lot with my brother. My, me and my brother would play all the time my family had like this little chess board with like a drawer in it so you could pull out the chess pieces and like line them all up and then you could put them back in it was very nice it was very sleek and i like it was a very like nice board and i would play all the time and my brother would kick my ass every single time i I would only (laughs) play with my older brother and he would always win it was the most he would like toy with me he would intentionally go and pick off all of my guys just so <laughs> that my king was the only one left against an army which was like such a oh, like a, God. which was such a demoralizing thing to just like be like it's just one man against an army and it's like and he's not gonna win it is
1: sadistic
2: <laughs> it was kind of fucked up i will be honest i was not as intelligent as him and he knew that and he was just he was toying with me it was it was really like a he might be a serial killer is what I'm getting
1: at. <laughs> How much older was your brother than you here, by the way?
2: He's two years older, which is, like, when you're a kid, is significantly older to, like, yeah, of course two years makes up the difference for chess like genius in my mind of course
1: but not old enough that it made him a sociopath for toying with a child (laughs) yes
2: of course like this isn't just like yeah my brother was 30 and I was (laughs) 8 and like a big thing for me was I don't know if y'all remember this is a deep cut remember the show Smart Guy on Disney Channel oh yeah yes there was an episode in there where like the smart guy the little kid who was like a prodigy could not win a chess tournament so what he did was he only took advice from his brother who didn't know how to play chess and was able to confuse a supercomputer enough to beat it and like that was my idea was just like what if i played so badly what if i played with no strategy whatsoever and just like leroy jenkins did the entire time and that way i could beat the supercomputer which was my brother and it turns out that's a great way to lose every match against your brother Yeah, it's
3: the nerd equivalent of mortal Kombat button mashing
2: exactly <laughs> uh, and then so I did not play for years and then like me and my wife played for the f- I was my first time playing in years she was like she was a part of chess club she won chess tournaments when she was a kid she's like was very good at chess and like she kicked my ass for like three rounds and then I won one of them and she was so defeated because she was like you <laughs> you beat me and so we didn't, we didn't play chess anymore <laughs> so i think
3: all of our backgrounds are about equivalent here well
2: you guys won i did bury the lead i kept playing
3: throughout all of elementary school and r- ended up ranking pretty highly in sixth grade before you know never playing again for like 10 years straight but yeah it was the the only trophy i ever won was a, a chess trophy <laughs> so it's...
2: i mean you were, you were a sixth grade chess champion you were obviously drowning in women at that yeah. time and you couldn't focus <laughs> on your studies
3: <laughs> did you have a rating i think i did i mean it was like an under... Uh, age 13 rating, and um, I was on the other end of that. But yeah, I got a, I got a nice tall trophy. It's proudly displayed as the only trophy in uh, my parents' house, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's all been downhill from there. Okay,
1: good. So we've, we've got someone here that actually knows what they're doing, because no, I actually very much enjoy it. It's something I would love to get back into, and actually I was wondering if, if we wanted to do some kind of game for this, if, if afterwards we want to do some, like, Twitch livestream or something. Oh, yeah. And uh, just watch David kick both
2: of our asses. <laughs> (laughs) It's me and Andrew versus David. (laughs) And I'm just like, do the stupidest move you can. It's going to work. It worked for the show's smart guy. Do the checkmate. That's the move. Put him in a body bag. I'm just Cobra tying it the entire time.
1: Good. so all right then after this i'm actually gonna have david teach me some stuff because i have always wanted to learn actual strategy for this beyond the basic of no you got to control the center of the board It was like cool but i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> so that doesn't help
2: <laughs> oh i do have one more one more thing to add in college two out of three of my roommates were all chess teachers like they would actually go to school and teach people chess and that was the other time that i played was them just being like and see when this is why you're the dumbest roommate <laughs> <As> they just
1: <laughs> how are you not better at this you have had so much exposure to chess champions. Yeah, I've had
2: a lot of exposure to them beating me. And then I'd be like, what am I going to be? Like, how did you do that? Like, they're smarter. They, they know what they're going. Like, I have had them try to explain strategy to me, but then my eyes glaze over and it's it's not a good look for me.
3: My chess teacher, my chess coach, I'll say, in uh, elementary school was, I think he had moved from Russia maybe like three or four years prior. Just had a thick accent Loved like classic, like romantic chess. Described everything with like such a hardcore Russian accent that to this day, whenever I play chess, I hear him in my head saying, "Oh, you've blundered! You've spoiled the game." It's (laughs) it's beautiful. I think it's the reason I enjoy playing. Honestly, I just I hear him in my head.
2: (laughs) If I had an old Russian man speaking in my ear, like like my guardian angel, I would love chess.
1: (laughs) So, so let's talk a bit about Queen's Gambit here, because I really enjoyed this series. I did not feel like it was a great representation of chess. What did you guys think?
3: What made you think it, it wasn't a good representation
1: of chess? I, I felt like there was so much consideration that obviously they can't show you in a series. They, they can't show you an hour of sitting down and go, going over what the move is. This was is absolutely not a critique on, on the show Itself, I get why it it made people enjoy chess, and honestly, I think it's the way they should have done it. But watching it back, I feel like it was very much just the extreme highs and extreme lows. And part of what I enjoy so much about chess is that it is a build. It is this constant back and forth, and that there is so much in the middle where you don't know if you're in control. And there's a lot that is obviously lost there and and not something that could be conveyed in TV. And I I hope people that are getting into chess because of it don't get discouraged immediately when they they see that it is more... Complex and it's like there because I think they put a lot of the complexities into the mindset rather than their strategy. That's that's why this game is such a beautiful game and it's one that you can really get immersed in.
3: Yeah, I, I did think they took out a lot of the more boring aspects of the game, or I guess less uh cinematic qualities of the game, which you should do if you're making a TV show. <laughs> yeah, <it's> a smart <laughs> it's right decision, call. even for a miniseries and not just a movie. Yeah, they, they also had a lot of plot to pack in. And they also had an absolute genius as your
1: main character here. And it's obviously she's going to be seeing chess in a way the world isn't seeing chess. This is is not necessarily a representation of the game that we're going to be playing. But it's still, I thought, a, a very good story. And so when I like, talked about it on an earlier episode was how many people like immediately Googled this. Like, was this real? <laughs> did this really happen? <laughs> they clearly captured something that made the public believe that this was a real story. And I thought they did a fantastic job with it.
3: I will say like from a cinematic standpoint, accuracy-wise, it's one of the most accurate representations of chess. Really? By a long shot. And I, I think part of it was, like, they had a grandmaster, Gary Kasparov, was, like, an advisor on set. He would come up with either positions, uh, whenever there was a chessboard on the screen, he would be coming up with what the position was, or, you know, pulling references from old classic famous games, and just setting them up, and it was all, like, easter eggs, I don't know, if you followed the the chess reddits, just, like, analysis of every episode, they'd point out, like, oh, this is, this is the night at the opera game, and, like, oh, this is Fisher vs. Spassky, and, like, it's just these little gems that, you know, one out of a thousand people is going to care about, but, As far as, like, if you think about, like, I mean, the famous examples of, like, when they play chess in X-Men or any movie. I just watched one movie the other day where he's, like, analogizing chess to war. And they're like, you know, in chess, the best player knows that you have to sacrifice pawns to win the game. And you're like, okay, that sounds cool. But, you know, that's not like a... Big rule in chess. (laughs)
1: Right. By the way, David made a face where I said I didn't think it was an accurate representation, and now I completely understand why. I want to be clear here that I do not know enough to be looking at the game and thinking, oh, nobody would have made that move. The moves (laughs) made sense from this idiot's perspective. Uh, but from the idea of that they are showing you the highlights, the games themselves, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed watching the play unfold for the bits they showed us. I really liked watching that. I, I think the part that, for me, the very low level of understanding was just in the concept of what the experience was. But obviously, that's this is supposed to be heightened. This is a, a woman who is is dealing with alcohol issues and can believe she can only envision the board when she's high. This is not supposed to be, oh yeah, this is going to be your chess experience. This is the Grandmaster, this particular tortured Grandmaster, master's experience
2: yeah i will say i don't think the show did a good job of capturing what it's like to do horse tranquilizers for fun
1: (laughs) (laughs) they missed the mark on that one (laughs) but i mean you guys both enjoyed this i mean i feel like everybody enjoyed this
2: oh it was great it was a great show as i mean as as entertainment especially when it came out i mean i like during the election i like was watching it as just like a just like a oh, this is something that will keep my focus while the world is going insane over here. So, like, it was a good little escape for that.
3: It was actually perfect. I will always remember the show as an election distraction. Yeah. Right, the one that kept me from going insane during during these few days. I'll watch someone else go insane. That's perfect. Yeah. And well, if
1: if you guys haven't seen it yet, uh, absolutely do do check it out. And do know that as we have learned from David, that the actual gameplay was some of the most realistic you've seen in movies. You can also watch X Men if you want to hear about how you need to sacrifice your pawns. Those <laughs> are the, your two options for chess in movies.
3: Can you believe Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart didn't know how to play chess when that movie happened? And they had they wait,
2: didn't... neither of them did.
3: Yeah, the two like coolest, most like they're knights. <laughs> They, they have pizzas named after them.
1: <laughs> Those are the two standards. Knights have pizzas named after you.
2: I would like the cool Magneto lines from the X-Men movies to be replaced by Ian McClellan just doing his best guess, where he's just like, <laughs> we're like, someone's about to attack, he's like, wait, in chess the horsies go first. (laughs) It's like, ah, so close, man.
1: I I mean, yeah, I I would have bet money. Like, I picture them just playing for fun in their free time. I mean, I can't really be disappointed in them. They're they're both absolutely killing it, but I'm very surprised. But let's uh, get a bit into the history here, and I'm going to keep this one a bit more brief because we've got a a lot to cover here. But when you start getting all the way back, the earliest records of chess date to 7th century uh, CE in India with precursors in the 6th century during the Gupta Empire called Chaturanga. And some of the basis here is obviously India- was the the country that has founded math, (laughs) that allowed it to develop in the way it did did today. The development of the concept of zero was thanks to India. This extension to chess is not really surprising, and the term for the game that translates to four divisions, the infantry, cavalry, elephantry, and chariotry, which are represented by the pieces that would become the pawn, knight, bishop, and rook. And then it just kind of spreads across the world slowly by kind of the people that conquer it. Uh, it, It's introduced to Persia, became part of the education of Persian nobility. Then the rules develop further. The, The player's called uh, Shah, Persian for king, and Shah Mat. Uh, the king is helpless, which became Czech and checkmate. And the Islamic conquest of Persia led to further spread across the Middle East and to Russia. And in the ninth century, it had reached Western Europe and Russia by at least three routes. By the year 1000, it spread across Europe. And as it's taking the world by storm, it starts growing in various forms in different regions, including uh, versions where you're playing along the lines instead of along the squares. And of course, as it gets popular, we reach the thing that we do in so often our history episodes, we start reaching these church sanctions about it.
2: Wait, wait, wait! I just want to say, like, I like how there are different versions back then because you know I play Star Wars chess. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're, we're still we're still innovating this game. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I forgot to mention, I did have a Simpsons chessboard that I I definitely led to a lot more growth than uh, than a regular boring <laughs> chess game. Done. I had a a friend with like a dragon chessboard.
1: <laughs> And it actually made me a better player because you couldn't tell any of the pieces apart. (laughs) So you had to remember where everything was. (laughs) It was so badly made. and I actually did improve a bit after playing on that board for a while. So we've got all of the uh, church sanctions. It's typically banned for religious leaders. Like early on in the year 1005, it's banned in Egypt. All
3: chess sets were ordered burned.
2: They didn't like how the bishops kept getting fucked up.
3: Well, it's because they, they thought it was a gambling game, right? Like, they thought it was a game of chance.
2: Only if you're bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> the
3: uh, takes on, on why this happened were,
1: were a few, because like 1128, you get the Knights Templar were forbidden to play. Eventually, the, the Jews allow it to play, but not for uh, for money, was a specific rule they had. But you also get the Council of Trier, which you might remember from our witchcraft episode, because they mainly dealt with witches, and they forbade chess from being played by the clergy. And then, of course, the Puritans ban it, because they do that with everything.
2: Well, yeah, it's a classic Puritan move. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So this is really surprising that chess actually survived all of this. And then there was banning, of course, of different uh, races. Jews are are banned from it uh, during World War II in in Germany, of course, and slightly before. One surprising one was chess was banned by transatlantic mail during World War II to keep it from being used to send coded messages. This was something that was actually done. And they're like, okay, but we've got to deal with like, the real stuff we can't have just don't just don't play chess by mail guys we've got enough going on here <laughs> just nip it in the bud yeah but the modern game really developed between 1475 and 1500 with the introduction of the mad queen chess or chess with the mad woman allowing the queen to move in the way that she does rather than like one square at a time she could now move diagonally and across the whole board and this became the format for the game we obviously play today and seems pretty consistent throughout the development
2: i just want to say i don't think there was a bigger step for feminism than when they were like the queen can do whatever the f- Fuck she wants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big moment for women when they're like, the queen can go anywhere. You can't tell her what to do. She's the best one on the entire board. It's just like, yes, yeah.
3: yes, <laughs> queen. That's what made it explode. Chess was very boring until the queen was juiced up like. it was it allowed games to be finished in i mean they're still taking a really long
1: time but in an acceptable amount amount of time now and yeah it allowed the game to become so much more popular
2: my strategy by the way my strategy was unleash the queen as fast (laughs) as possible and fuck up as much as you can before they kill her like that was my number one strategy and you know what didn't work
3: (laughs) i'm hearing the russian voice in my head do not bring the queen out so early
2: (laughs) yeah I now understand why in chess the pawns go first. We're just going to say that a lot now because like I was immediately just like let's get the queen out there. Let's get the queen out there to really mess things up.
1: We should definitely have like an all comedian game of chess. I-, I feel like it's going to be bad but way more entertaining.
2: I would be a terrible general is what I'm trying to say. Yeah,
1: that's the overall <laughs> message here. Well, then in, in the mid-1800s you-, you get the actual first official chess tournaments. The chess clock is invented shortly thereafter and that changes things because now you can have speed chess and lightning chess, and it really changes the way the game is played here. But uh, that really starts to bring us to the modern era, which is also where things not surprisingly start to go wrong. So David, where did this...
0: Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set.
2: Go wrong. Hey everyone, before we get into today's pod, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join.
3: So David, where did this go wrong? Well, so my favorite part of chess time was definitely, you know, like the romantic 1800s period of chess where it was like people were playing for the art you'd look at these games and people would make just bonkers moves you know sacrificing their queen for no seemingly no reason and then swooping in with another piece or sacrificing all of their pieces and and like the other player would also at times be helping like it was more of like you were both collaborating in this piece of art like building to this awesome game and it was very cool and very fun and then obviously. Theory started coming in and people started planning out positions. And I think the two kind of sides coexisted. You know, you had people saying, okay, there's good openings and bad openings. There's good mid-game strategy and bad end-game strategy. You can still find romantic flares, but, you know, you don't have to be a dumbass about it. You can uh, you can meet halfway. I would say the point where it really started to go downhill was the introduction of computers and the analysis and the uh, ability to... To look at a game objectively and say, no, this is the... 100% 100% right move, or this is the 100% wrong move.
1: It's such an interesting development because it seems like computers would be ideal for this. <laughs> I mean, this is largely a mathematical, and, of course, a very strategic game, but it did really usher in this new era where instead of playing instinctually, people are memorizing movesets and trying to come up with what is mathematically the best move. And computers have obviously reached a point where they're close to unbeatable. Certainly the the top players still get win. Wins in but they're not really winning a full tournaments against them. I think they're unbeatable. I think they are literally
3: unbeatable. Did Magnuson ever play them? Carl Magnuson is the current uh, champ, by the way. I think he refuses because he knows that's the crazy thing, too, is that like chess. If you talk about games in terms of solvability, uh, like checkers as a game was solved, I think, kind of recently. Like they figured out, okay, if you go first, here's the perfect amount of moves and you will win. Connect four guess who has been solved yeah
2: <laughs> Pac-Man. pac-man has a the strategy
1: there, I, by the way i said magnus it's magnus carlson who is uh who is the it's just a kid he's like 22 now with the highest ever chess rating with a 2882
2: that's a bad sign for him and we'll get into that later <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well and uh co- but computers have achieved a rating of 3187 and it's in the 80s when they start being competitive by the way Like, the the origin of this is the Mechanical Turk, which came out in 1770, which is this box with supposed hidden mechanics inside. And this is this unbeatable chess machine and it lasts for about 80 years and it's just a guy inside moving (laughs) it by magnets but they're getting chess masters to do this and people are coming just to lose to the mechanical turk and it was absolutely incredible and also they've got chess masters willing to sit in a box and move (laughs) move these pieces around with magnets and they don't get the glory it's like uh it's like the end of the movie prestige is standing under the. it's for the love of the game uh and for you know just fucking with people mostly (laughs) but look i mean turing worked on this in the 80s, you you do finally get them becoming competitive. But then the big one, when things really change, is Kasparov and Deep Blue. I don't know if you guys remember this at the time. I think I'm older than both of you. But I, I followed this at the time. And uh, this is a six-game series. Kasparov won one, uh, drew two, lost three. The second one, by the way, which he d- does lose, he accuses IBM, Deep Blue, of cheating, of somehow knowing his moves ahead of time. This is still kind of considered... Impossible. And and the breakdown of this is what they figured out is it's not just about studying the moves uh, or studying the mathematically correct moves. It's about studying the past players. And this is why this 1997 uh, improved version from Deep Thought, which Kasparov did fairly well against in 1989, is so advanced because now they've started programming the uh, Deep Blue based on previous Grandmaster's style of play. They've also now, uh, the technology is advanced enough that Deep Blue can be considering his moves to 11 and 12 moves out. And this depth of this play has advanced to a point where players have suddenly said look if i mean he can calculate 200 million moves a second we can do strategy <laughs> we're good at this but When someone can calculate every possible option and see the most likely one, which is where you get something like uh, Smart Guy, where it's like, oh, if I do something stupid enough, it won't know what I'm doing and I can extend the play. Because I think from this game, they had actually said, you don't have to beat it, you just have to last long enough.
3: I think one of those games, Kasparov actually did do a crazy, like, considered bad opening because he was like, this is going to throw off the... Watch this. This computer's going to suck. And it, it got a, it whooped.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, he did try a couple unexpected openings.
2: And then the computer was just like, checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: But I, I think this, this was the, the start of where it went wrong in a lot of ways. And it's still a game I absolutely love. But I think it, it switched a little bit. This, this was a very artistic game. It was a, a game that you could see in the romance era. And now this became a game that was very hardcore. And one thing that's not discussed too often, because people debate whether or not it's a sport, but the current players are undergoing training regimens. They, they found that players can burn 6,000 calories a day sitting playing these tournaments just from the mental energy they're expending. There have been tournaments that had to be canceled because one player over a a long period where the game just kept going, he lost 20 pounds uh, and they were worried for his life. The the level of physical stress from the mental energy put into this is insane. So I get the switch. I, I get why it left the romance era to the hardcore practice where you now have ones that are on very specific diets. They're on training regimens. They're working out in the gym, you know, to train for their chess matches. And it's this weird dichotomy, but it has also led to much less of the romance era which was one of the things that was so great to watch
2: i'm just imagining seeing a guy that's like fucking jacked and be like oh i wouldn't want to play him in chess yeah (laughs) (laughs) like i'm not gonna play chris hemsworth have you seen that fucking guy it's like that's a master chess player's physique right there yeah
1: Uh, Magnus Carlsen, I uh, obviously would mention but before, he used to drink orange juice beforehand. Uh, he said now he he gives up sugar supposedly for the months before a tournament because he doesn't want to deal with the the dip in energy. He was, you know, saw a nutritionist. And then these people are being trained, people that trained athletes to get them in shape to compete in chess tournaments. And it's incredible that the depth of the game. And that is actually one thing that I very much enjoyed about Queen's Gambit 2, was that they showed why and how people got so obsessive over this. Uh, even in an era where it hadn't quite reached that level, uh, obviously this was before computers, but but still on a personal level for these players, it was it was always there because yeah, th- this was something that you devoted your life to.
3: Well, and if you think if you like look at all of the top players and their ages, or track you know top players as they age and how how they progress in ratings, like you do see there's kind of a, a median age around 30s, and then and then people dip, and it's not because your brain gets dumber as you get older it's it's that it, it takes a lot of concentration and you know, even when you're training, you're training six to eight hours a day. Like when you get older, it's just you just don't have the time for it, or you know, you're not able to to memorize so many moves as much, and it's, it becomes kind of a young person's game in that regard.
1: Absolutely, and I, I think that does tie into. We had a couple of points here where we thought this is this is where it went wrong, and it led to a lot. So, when, how about you tell us a bit about some of the mental aspects of this game? What happens some of these players?
2: Okay, so do we want to get into players first, or do we want to get into some cheating scams? You know what
1: here? you the. You did some really good research on this. Where do you want to start?
2: Okay, so I'll just start with computers have had a kind of a big effect. But there's a thing where people love to try to figure out ways to cheat in chess. One of the first main like high profile ones was in 18. uh, So a big thing was collusion, which is players would go in and they would pretty much go in with the decision of just like, look, you and me are going to play each other to a draw. I will lose this match. You will lose that match. And there was actually an argument when they figured this whole thing out. When they came to them and said, You guys can't do this. The response was pretty much there's no rule that says we can't decide if we're going to win or lose a match beforehand. It was the
1: air bud defense. Of,
2: I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me I can't lose a match if I want to lose a match, which is an insane argument just right out the gate
1: some of the strategy behind this was that it's the the physical tool that we talked about they don't have to play this game anymore it's not just going to damage their rating too much to to play this game to a draw and they are in much better shape for their next match than their opponent's going to be who pay, played a potentially eight hour game and had to win it.
2: Yeah, and uh, basically, they went through and they were like, uh, recent, uh, not recently, but in the last century, they went through and they looked at all the world chess champion matches and they realized that the Soviets had been colluding with each other for like 20 straight years which is why they had like an unbeatable record because they kept going in with the mindset of just like look you scratch my back i'll scratch your back and they pretty much all went in just knowing exactly who they were going to get to that last match
1: and the soviets also did something that they've done with gymnastics and, and ballet and other arts in that they took so much national pride in these games which is surprising when you, you find this result that they would sponsor their players. You know, their players would get paid to play chess. And that is a huge advantage when you're facing an American who is kind of needs to win this tournament in order to survive.
3: And not even just that, but like in the 60s, 70s, the, the, you know, the kind of the the pinnacle of both the Cold War and chess, um, like Russia, Russia was, they were like going through every single school, testing all of the five-year-old children, like pulling out the good the the ones who showed promise and then just teaching them nothing but chess for the rest of their lives
1: oh yeah it was intense and and they obviously gave us some of the greatest players of the world but also there is this 20-year period where it's like guys we know this is technically allowed but come on you can't you can't keep doing this <laughs>
2: like stop stop come on like could you imagine lebron james going out there and just being like look there's no rule that says i can't yeah. the game on purpose like that ruins so much of the fun i mean i guess
3: you also get like boris Spassky is the chess beyonce really if you think about it <laughs> That is the first time we have ever heard that sentence. (laughs) Oh, I
1: say it every day.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And then uh, when it comes to computers, I mean, you have examples of people using technology to start cheating in chess. Uh, One of the earliest examples of this was in the 1993 World Open. An unrated player came in wearing headphones they said were to concentrate, and he scored a four and a half out of nine in the open section. So he took a Grandmaster all the way to a draw. So he was playing insanely well. This was being a little suspicious. Everyone's like, we've never heard of this guy before. And he just tied a grandmaster. How is this possible? So they had him take off his headphones and then they asked him basic chess questions and he couldn't answer any <laughs> of them. He was having somebody watch the match and tell him where to move the horsey (laughs) and things like that. He did not know the game of chess at all. And they never figured out who he was like talking to. So that's a one example. Another big one, 2010, uh, there are three French players. One was in the tournament. One was at home watching the tournament on television and entering in the moves into a computer to figure out the exact right move to make. And the third guy was in the room of the tournament, standing up and like walking to different chairs (laughs) and like sitting down in them to signal what the next play should be so just imagine like just one guy looking up to watch another man just kind of run around <laughs> and like sit in a chair and like stare at him you know i
3: did that with the game battleship uh at recess when i was in first grade <laughs> we had someone writing on the whiteboard the areas to call out and i would just sit and read them wait what is the benefit of cheating at battleship what was <laughs> you win you win the war you win the battleship <laughs>
2: I use I use the French one and the headphones one because those are like the most interesting examples because the rest of them are purely somebody saying I have to go to the bathroom (laughs) going to the bathroom and either calling a friend or using a smartphone app like all the major cheating scandals in chess are somebody being like, hey, do you mind if I take a five minute bathroom break and then going in there and being like, how to win chess
1: (laughs) google (laughs) my favorite one though that that you had found here was a guy who did just that except instead of like using a program he's just playing a chess game on his playstation
2: (laughs) yes he had a playstation portable that he brought into the bathroom and like (laughs) He lost like it was not like an like, expert program. He was cheating, but like he was using the worst software to possibly cheat of just a PlayStation game. And he got his ass kicked. Also, how
1: bad do you have to be at cheating to be cheating and losing and then still to suspect you of cheating? Like you are bad at all aspects of this. <laughs> You're suspiciously
3: bad. You're bad in a yeah. weird way. You're bad
2: in a way that would expect like Crash Bandicoot to be bad. Yeah. Or, <laughs> Why are you playing such a crash bandicoot style of play?
1: <laughs> so th- this is yeah, I mean you're right. There was a, a good deal of this and eventually once we reached the era of computers, it was basically the same thing. It was someone found a way to sneak a computer in. And it was effective. It was it was largely effective. Obviously it's gonna be more challenging at the top levels when it's not you know when they've got to sneak this this program around but it happens far too often uh and i think this also speaks to the change in what was once a gentleman in a gentlewoman's game this has become so highly competitive again not that it wasn't before but in a very different form now which when i i think also brings us to some of the mental state of some of these players
2: andrew i did so much research for this oh my god there's no paper that links the reason for this i've no like direct correlation for why one leads to the other. And I'm going to like, try to be as respectful in my language as possible when I say this, but people who play chess to that level are very likely to lose their fucking minds. (laughs) I think that's the most respectful way I can say that there are so many examples of chess players that just went off the deep end so far that it is mind-blowing to me. By the
1: way, I appreciate how much work you, you, you did research on this. I know every episode I say, I did so much research on this. <laughs> and I know you did on this this one too. And I we, we want the public to know how hard we work for you, for the listeners. We appreciate you being here. So what I started looking into around this was the percentage of actual geniuses that have gone crazy because it's something that's talked about quite a bit. But it's, it's obviously just one of the challenges of psychology as being a soft science is that there is not so we can point to and say, you know, this is exactly what we found because you find some articles where they say this happens a lot. One of the more recent ones I found from a psychology professor at Harvard said when you look at the statistics, this is not happening that much more often with geniuses. In fact, it might be happening less. What you do see is geniuses thinking non-linearly. They're thinking in ways uh, and because of that, approaching things in ways that are unappealing to the public. They also might be more prone to certain things. Uh, Again, this was a separate article where they said they seem to be more prone to things like bipolar disorder, but actual things that might be qualified as insanity, not really, this Harvard professor posits. It's more of the fact that the way they think is not considered acceptable to the public. However, you see a much more extreme version in chess where maybe it's just one of those things where the public latches onto it because every time it happens, it's this huge thing. But we did have a number of chess players that seemed to suffer from schizophrenia or some form of insanity. You also have people like Bobby Fischer, who was just ragingly anti-Semitic. And I hate that he got painted in this corner uh, in the same category as being insane. It was like, maybe he just hates Jews, guys. I'm, I'm a Jew. I've dealt with this before.
2: <laughs> OK, so let's back up. So for those who don't know, Bobby Fischer was a child prodigy when he was 13 13- I believe he played in what was known as the game of the century. He is barely past a child. He you know, he is a a newly minted teenager and he plays an international chess master and fucking wins. Like that is how good he is at chess. He barely has like puberty going through his veins and yet he has the mental capacity to beat one of the greatest players in the world at chess. And
3: as an American, From Brooklyn, no less, with zero training.
2: Oh yeah, he was an absolute prodigy. When he was 14, he became the youngest U.S. chess champion of all time. When he was 20, he became the first person to win the world championship in 11 games. He won 11 out of 11, a perfect score which had never been done, and I don't think it has been done since, to win 11 out of 11, okay? He was the world champion in 1972 and then refused to reclaim his title in 75 which a lot of people think might have caused some kind of mental break because he immediately went and became a full-on recluse
3: he also pulled some crazy stunts during that world championship too which were kind of indicators looking back on what was to come but i think at one point he had he was convinced his Chair, the chair he was sitting in was like, you know, had some sort of like Russian toxin in it or uh, a microphone of some kind. He had them like completely dismantle the chair and inspected the whole thing. There's just things that were like, okay, something's going on, but we're not going to question it because you're very good at chess. If we're gonna... <laughs> you're
2: so good at this game.
1: <laughs> right. He also had this thing <laughs> where he would enter tournaments and for an agreed amount of money. And then as soon as the country was signed, he would demand more. He was one of the most challenging to work with in general and things that generally suggested in inst- stability and again his his style of of play was very out there too and for the most part this was accepted and he's again made numerous anti-semitic speeches he he claimed bill clinton was a secret jew and the cia were all all jews and it was a lot of really like not that like oh this guy might have an issue with jews it was like hate speech and constant and it was kind of constantly pushed aside too was like yeah but he's so good
2: but the man could play the hell out of some (laughs) chess (laughs) right
1: it's actually not until 2001 when people finally say, okay, this is too far. So when, what happened in 2001?
2: In 2001, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but 9-11 happened. Big thing. It's why you have to take off your shoes at airports in case you were curious. And here's what happened. In 1992, Fischer did a, uh, a rematch versus uh, Spassky, who was the, the number one player of Yugoslavia. That is who he beat in 1972. And so for his great, like, I'm back, bitches, moment in 1992, he was going to do a rematch against Spassky underneath the United Nations banner in an unofficial game. And what is needed to be mentioned is Yugoslavia was currently under an embargo with the United States. We were not supposed to have any interaction with Yugoslavia. And they told Fischer this, and his response was basically fuck you and he went and he won that game and then america was like hey you're under arrest buddy so he fled to iceland so when 9-11 happened he came out there all like just going nuts and was just like guess what guys this was the coolest thing that's ever happened he was like a 9-11 cheerleader and then at that point everyone went Guys, I'm starting to think Bobby Fischer's kind of messed up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was again. He had done so much here that should have had him out of commission, and this was was the one where I mean, rightfully, I I agree with the decision, but but that finally was like too much. It was like, guys, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of people died here. You're good at chess, but it's still chess. You, I don't that, think that,
2: you're that good at chess,
1: right?
3: <laughs> you can't be good enough to make this acceptable. Well, isn't it crazy though? Like, you th- think about like when a, when a musician. When something crazy comes out about them or something just vile and you're like, I'm never listening to their music again, despite the Bobby Fischer saying probably the most horrific stuff a person could say about terrorism or the loss of human lives. You can still play it through his chess games and it's amazing. His, yeah, it's art.
2: <laughs> the guy's very good at chess. Not a good guy.
1: Yeah. And also he doesn't get royalties from us watching his previous chess <laughs> right. games. And I, I think that helps a bit. That, that's always the challenge with art: separating the art from the artist. It's like, well, yeah, but as long as they get my money, we're not really separating the art from the artist. You guys feel free to go look up Bobby Fischer's old games. He will not get paid for it. And they are fascinating games. <laughs>
2: he said you can do a podcast that you're monetized a whole all about making fun of Bobby Fisher. And it turns out you don't have to pay him a damn thing.
3: Yeah, <laughs> you can say his name as much as we want. Bobby Fisher. That is a great point,
1: guys. We're doing it right now. I didn't even consider <laughs> that. It was like, we didn't even have to. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of forget what this job is sometimes.
2: <laughs> Andrew, you're currently making money making fun of Bobby Fisher. That has to at least even scales a little bit, right? <laughs> I mean,
1: I'm not enough money for that level of anti-Semitism, but I'm feeling <laughs> good about it.
3: <laughs> Part of the thing about his insanity, too, is that he he was half Jewish and, you know, had a Jewish upbringing. And it's like, OK. There's there's definitely something that's gone wrong here, something that he
1: tried to deny for years. But his mom was like, yeah, okay, but I'm Jewish. (laughs) So it was I I think one that that I mentioned more, because when you start reading the accounts and I I think also because I read them uh, again shortly before the show. And there are some of the more horrific anti-Semitic statements like there. There's enough. I'm a comedian that's on the Internet. I get this a fair amount, but these are some of the more horrific ones you'll you'll see. And I dislike the idea of linking that with insanity because it's something that you do see in normal people and is not... Uh, a result of, of mental illness. It was just part of who he was, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a mental illness component as well.
2: Okay, Andrew. That guy, okay, we can maybe say there wasn't mental illness there. So how about I tell you about another chess player?
1: Are we gonna hit Morphe? Because Morphe got some stuff going on.
2: <laughs> Morphe's got some stuff going on. So yeah, let's get into let's get into Paul Morphe, who is known as the pride and sorrow of chess. Which I gotta say. <laughs> incredible epithet to have on your name. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Morphy became one of the best players in New Orleans at the age of 9. Like people would come and try to play this 9-year-old in chess and he would whoop on them. Yeah. <laughs> at 13, a visiting Hungarian chess master was beaten in 3 games by Paul Morphy. And once again, 13 has to be some kind of a weird age where all of your chess superpowers come out. Cause it always is like 13. It's like, and then he became really good at chess. I don't know what it was.
3: That's actually when you're, when the X-Men developed mutant powers too. So I was just thinking that it was like, all right, I think we got this. Whoa. Full circle.
2: Paul Morphy received his law degree in 1857 and he was too young to actually legally practice law. He was so far advanced. He was able to get the degree, but legally they wouldn't let him actually be a lawyer. So instead, he became just the first U.S. chess champion. Like, he was just (laughs) like, this is my gap year. I'm going to become the world's greatest chess player. (laughs) And so he did. And then he traveled to Europe, and he just went around Europe playing every decorated player in chess and kicking their asses. By the time the trip was done, he was hailed as the greatest player in the world and the unofficial world chess champion
1: this is only about 10 years after chest rents officially started by the way they weren't really prepared for someone to be this good this consistently
2: yeah And then he got back and he was like, okay, guys, I'm done playing chess. I'm not going to play chess anymore. Instead, I'm really going to focus on this law thing. But he wouldn't shut the fuck up about chess and he (laughs) drove all of his clients away.
3: (laughs) Also, didn't they didn't they treat it like, oh, why would I hire you? You you play chess like as if it was like, you know, it was was like a it it was a sign that he didn't take anything seriously. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you, you just you're, you're good at chess. Why would you be good at real life? Right?
2: Well, yeah, if I, well, here's the thing. If I went to a lawyer and was just like, hey, I need you to represent me in a court of law. And he was just like, yeah, but let me tell you about my call of duty days. Yeah, I would be a little <laughs> bit like <laughs> I don't want to do this with you. This is we're not doing whatever this is. I want to talk about my problems, not how good you are at the game you like.
1: And now there tends to be this assumption of. Chess equaling genius, uh, which again was not always the assumption, but also not always the case. You can be very good. At just chess. You know, you can have a very logical mind, but this kind of be the only thing that you understand. And now I I think it's kind of entered the zeitgeist in a a mindset of no, if you're good at chess, you're a genius and you're gonna be good at everything. And at this time it was like, yeah, you're good at chess. Does at any point did you read a law book?
2: Well, here's the thing with Morphe though, he might not have been like a great lawyer, but he was fantastic at living off of his family's wealth and just wandering around New Orleans muttering to himself, which is what (laughs) he was mainly known for near the end there. he would just like find people on the street that he thought looked interesting to him and he would follow them through the streets of new orleans until they went inside their homes because he would not stop otherwise muttering to himself about chess the entire time which is scary as hell yeah
3: <laughs> didn't he have a crazy death too
2: oh yeah so This is and I will say that this is might be more urban legend than than fact. And so I'm going to preface that in just in case any Morphe heads are just like really just diving into this podcast. It's alleged that he was discovered dead in his bathtub from a stroke surrounded by a perfect circle of women's shoes.
1: That's the way to go.
2: (laughs) what I'm talking about. Look, that's how if, if anyone's gonna do it, that's how I do it. That's how I do like Old
3: circle say. of women's shoes having a stroke in about the
2: wasn't the stroke he intended when he laid out the shoes. Oh god. <laughs> that was a good layup. Come on, that come was on? the whole reason we did
3: this
1: whole episode. That was just for that <laughs> joke That's it, folks. We're done.
2: Paul morphy doesn't even exist, idiots. <laughs> but Morphy
1: was one of one of the extreme examples, one of the early examples, too. We've also got uh, William Steinitz, who, uh, again, he started playing young, uh, which is something you see in pretty much all competitive uh, athletes in any form. He played more competitively in his 20s. But what happened with uh, Steinitz? And then I know there's the one that you really want
2: to tell us about in Pachushkin. I'm so excited. Tell us about Steinitz. Steinitz is all you. (laughs) Okay,
1: so Steinitz went from being the third player in Vienna to the number one where he won 30 out of 31 matches. He traveled to London, competed competitively, doing well enough to just focus on chess, this became his career. So eventually, though, Sinus took this nine-year hiatus from chess and he's developed a style that went away from the attack style that was very popular at the time and instead created the positional strategy that really became the basis of modern chess strategy. This is, uh, again, mid and, and late 1800s. So he was revolutionary in the game, but he takes this nine year hiatus from chess, instead of focusing on chess journalism and frequently uh, challenging the chess masters who criticized his analysis of the game. None of them actually wanted him to, to play. And it was like, cool, but you're, you're right at the thing.
2: Yeah, basically, they were just like, he would just write something, making like mocking their style. They would be like, "Hey, fuck you, man!" And he'd be like, "Okay, well, will you play me?" And they'd be like, "Well, like, let's not do that. Let's <laughs> right." Like,
1: imagine it. Like, if you were uh, owned a restaurant and a restaurant critic critiqued your food, it was like, "Okay, we're gonna have a cook-off." And it was like, "Okay, but no. This is my. I'm cooking. <laughs> you can just go write another article. I'm just mad." So <laughs> he eventually came out of retirement and he set the tournaments again. Eventually, moving to the U.S., becoming a citizen. But it's not until after finally losing his title that Stan had suffered a breakdown and he was actually put in an asylum and would spend his days beating the other residents in jail. Yes. But the big thing was later in life, he would tell others he had a device, a system to communicate with God, wherein they would uh, play chess together. And uh, Steinitz claimed he beat God on many occasions and probably didn't. I mean, I technically we can't say that for sure, <laughs> but I'm skeptical.
2: I just love the idea of him losing his, because he was the world's first official world chess champion. He was the first one to ever exist and he lost his title and it might have caused some kind of mental break. But what kind of bounce back... Is- in saying look i might not be the world champion but i beat
3: god it's also just like he couldn't just go the step of yeah i play god in chess like as if like okay i've got you till then let me just tell you also that i beat him and it's like you know if this was real like god god let him win he was clearly an
1: exhausted person. <laughs> At some point, God was like, you you beat me. Good job, Steinitz. But on the articles I, I read about some of the, again, thought processes of, of, of geniuses and, and connection to insanity, they had mentioned too that, that some of the studies to do a comparison studied the thought processes of people in asylums. And they found that there was no correlation, that the processes that we typically saw in geniuses was not there in people that were suffering from mental illness to a degree that to uh, have them institutionalized. And in fact, the conclusion of uh, this particular professor was was that those that did go insane would probably have been even better had they not suffered from this. This was not contributing to their genius. It was if anything, a hindrance. And they were, in fact, just so good (laughs) that they could play beyond it.
2: Could you imagine being that good with like a handicap?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. But I I think that brings us to Wen's favorite. He was telling me about this and it was fascinating. So Wen, tell us about Pachushkin, who was not a professional player, but was by far the most interesting.
2: Okay, so I found this and I was just like, look, this is going in the episode no matter what. (laughs) Alexander Pachushkin was A Russian resident who uh, was very aggressive and he it was a burden on his family how just aggressive and mean he fucking was they sent him to live with his grandfather who decided I'm going to teach him how to channel this aggression through the game of chess and he did he picked it up and he was good he would go to the park and he was known for just going to the park and beating the shit out of everyone in chess he was very good but he never rose to that professional level now around the time of his adulthood uh they noticed that there were a lot of people who were being murdered (laughs) and they would be bludgeoned from behind and guys okay i'm just gonna say uh just a content warning here it will be a little bit graphic here going forward if you want to skip ahead a few minutes so this
3: is a podcast, though. This is what everyone's here yeah. It's what
2: people are here for, but I do want to give a content warning since we don't normally talk about graphic violence on the podcast.
1: I'm not going to listen to this part.
2: Please don't. <laughs> so he would bludgeon people, this Kurt killer would bludgeon people in the head and then shove a full vodka bottle in to lobotomize them as just a way of just like as an extra kind of fuck you to whoever he just murdered. I don't know the exact reasoning here.
1: (laughs) I would be very concerned if you did.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, it's so that the alcohol. uh, Yeah. It's it's just like really. That's how you know that if your co host is fucking insane, if they're able to completely tell you why they shove vodka bottles into their victims' heads. Anyways, eventually a woman's body is found in this kind of state and they go through whatever security cam footage they have. Guys, this isn't far away. Like, this isn't a long time ago. This person is still alive. Alive. They go through security footage and they find out that the last person that she had contact with was Alexander Pakushkin. And so they went to his home and they found out that yeah, it's Pakushkin and they arrested him for 49 murders. 40? nine murders. I'm going to say it. That
1: is, that is too many murders.
2: That's way more than you want. And when they arrested him for them, his response was, there's 11 more you guys haven't figured out yet. Can you add those on? (laughs) What the fuck? Wasn't he trying to get, 64 he was trying to get the number of squares well yes he was trying to get 64 he was trying to get 64 because when they went through his home they found a chess board and on each square was the date of a different murder he committed and he was trying to get to 64 to fill up the entire board He was known as the chessboard murder. Now, I will say a lot of people think that he was just doing that as a gimmick and that once he reached 64, he wasn't going to say... And I'm done now.
1: I mean, no, you can buy another chessboard. He was going to buy another, <laughs> another chessboard.
2: Board. Like this guy was not going to stop once he hit 64. They didn't get him right at the end and keep him from finishing his dream. He was definitely going to do another game. There was going to be a shoots and ladders style set of murders <laughs> if the chess thing finished. But that was the most insane thing I'd ever read. And I was like, this is going in the fucking episode. <laughs>
1: it's absolutely horrific and and again this this was the the chess tight in this place i think is is a lot more like i feel like this was a guy that just wanted to be really good at chess it was like you can't you can't force this you're not like i get it you enjoyed playing with people in the park you don't need to make this your whole thing if you can't beat them murder them yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is his catchphrase when this becomes a movie in like four years but like he's alive he's not dead no this was recent <laughs> this this
3: was like very recent this was what like in the 90s yeah how could he have I- i'm surprised i maybe i don't listen to enough true crime podcasts but 49 murders sounds like every podcast should be about
2: him. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right that's so many murders
1: I mean, that's a really good point is that we've got serial killers. We're like, oh, man, he killed like five to six people and like 60 people. That is that is a ton of people like your ideal murder number is zero. So it is way more that I help you. Everyone in the audience already knows this by the way, but zero is what you're shooting for when you're getting to know a person.
2: But like to fill up the chessboard with the dates. I mean, that's one of those things where I'm just like, Oh my God, that's insanely fucked up. But also how have I never heard this before? It right. is so
1: specific. This really seems like it should be a story that, well, I'm glad we're telling it. We got there first guys. Don't Google it. I don't want it to know if anybody else got there first.
2: <laughs> Fuck you sword and scale. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I think that is uh, generally what we love about chess. It has an absolutely fascinating history. I really do enjoy games. I I love board games, but there have been very few where I have felt as immersed in a world as I did in chess and it was something that I could very much get into and uh, what we've so strongly disliked about it is of course
2: the 49 murders Yeah, the 49
1: murders is really like the, <laughs> the worst part uh, <laughs> but other than that it was the introduction of technology into the game that has really changed the style of play but of course we do have the section in their defense where one of us has to defend that we're not going to defend the murders the murders I think we could all agree should not be defended but David here is going to defend the actual
3: introduction of computers in chess so David in their defense computers in chess what are your thoughts alright without upsetting the world of chess fans out there who hate computers. I mean, it was it's bound to happen no matter what. Like that that's just what's going to happen with technology and you know, if it's bound to happen, it's at least cool that we're living in the age when it is happening. To the point about, you know, older players getting worse as they play longer. I think a lot of that has to do also with them just getting comfortable. Old, older players come from a time of being more comfortable with just they could play one opening for their whole life and get away with it. I think the introduction of computers has led to much... It's an exponential amount of discovery about the study of chess, about new openings, new strategies, new ways to play that you've never had before. So you've got people studying, you know, obviously a lot more than they used to, but it's well-meaning and it actually does produce very interesting results in that, you know, you're able to gut check these things. It moves against computers. You're able to get better, uh, and see yourself get better by, by mathematics. There's also, you know, people who, you know, might not know many people who play chess. Like I played my parents and my brother for a while, uh, when I was a kid and then I had a chess program and I started playing that and that's when I started getting good. So it's, you know, the teacher and That you can have in your pocket on your phone. I think it's while it's making people cheat at a far higher frequency, especially now in in COVID days, everyone's playing online, chess tournaments are being held on online. It's very easy to cheat, but I think it does just kind of cause people to try and be better. There are ways to detect cheating uh, in certain moves that you can make. They're getting good at, uh, better at snuffing it out and 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 finding out if you, if you are cheating. Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's led it's leading to a new era that is completely unexplored, and we're we're all figuring it out together. I'm in for it. I'm in for the ride. I actually agree. Again, that that game that I had as a child was a big thing for me. I kept that for <laughs> way
1: too long until I could finally play online. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's changed some of the nostalgia of the game. But the development of strategy has been beautiful. And when you're able to look at a game and see uh, the elegance behind it and realize that these games, too, it's, it's not cold. It's calculated. But the reason they're doing well is because it's still beautiful. Uh, they're still coming up with very creative ways of play. And it's advanced the game. It's just happened to take some of that romantic nostalgia out of it. And I, I can see positive and a negative to it. But, you know, it's, it's not like I needed a program to beat me. I was going to get beaten by most people. Yeah. <laughs> this is an advancement not required <laughs> for my level
2: of play. Yeah, we're not sitting here like bemoaning the fact that we can't beat the supercomputers like i can't beat not a not even a prodigy i i won't win against a regular 13 year old yeah (laughs) a regular 13 year old who plays chess occasionally will kick my ass no matter what so i'm not bemoaning the fact that computers were introduced i mean and there's a lot of games that you know you could say that like some people say that you know computers can ruin baseball and it's just like no, because you're not playing against a computer all the time. Like, yeah, you're going to play one-on-one against people. It does make cheating easier, but when the game is played, you know, to the best of your ability by two people, the, the game is still pure. The The computer does not have to be involved if you don't want it to be. And
1: I, I think something we've seen, and, and coming up in so many episodes that have, that have dealt with the history, is that there will always be romantic nostalgia in humans. The, the game has definitely changed, but it doesn't mean it was always this pure romantic era thing we view it to be now there's always going to be that thought when considering that there is a different style of play now the way we saw it <laughs> when we were kids doesn't mean that's the way it always was and i personally i'm just glad that it's becoming more and more mainstream this really is a beautiful game and if you haven't played it uh we hope you will also if, if you enjoy this episode if you'd like to see us play we always have the link to our dms in the comments let us know if you'd like to see it we can set up a twitch stream or something and have david kick both of our asses <laughs> but most importantly david thank you so much for coming on it was an absolute pleasure to talk about and have you explain some
3: of this to us yeah this was uh this was a joy no one ever i I never get the chance to talk about chess for this long with anyone. So I'm glad I could force you guys to do it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for doing it. and Especially letting me indulging me as I talked about people who suffered from mental illness while I laughed. That's uh it's not a great look, but it's what I did.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's recorded forever yeah. and ever. <laughs>
2: that won't bite me in the ass.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. This was so much fun. If you guys enjoyed this, please subscribe. Leave five stars, It helps us out so much. If you would actually like to see us play, then uh, yeah, we always have the DM to reach one eye in the comments. Let us know. We can set something up on uh, Twitch or something and watch David kick both of our asses. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We're going to be back next week with another episode. We'll hope you'll join us again then. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week, When. Bye. Bye. Bye.